Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome back to Off the Wall. We have an amazing speaker with us today to talk about something that I love, planning, but not in the sense that I like to talk about the word. I'm not about financial planning, more stepping back big picture about plans versus planning and which is something that we talk about all the time, but she's got a really good take on this. Our guest today is Terry Trespicio. She is an award-winning writer and speaker. Her TEDx talk is called Stop Searching for Your Passion, and it's been viewed more than 7 million times. So it's really good. Definitely encourage you to check that out. But she also has a book coming out in December of this year that's called Unfollow Your Passion, How to Create a Life That Matters to You. We're really excited to have Terry on the podcast today. Yeah, Terry, welcome. Thanks for making the time to join us. So excited, you guys. Thank you. I mean, 7 million views on your TEDx talk. I can't get somebody to listen to me seven times on any well, issue, You have to realize so. half of them were my mother. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to jump right into the end of your book, Terry. Let's skip through all the other stuff. Yeah, skip through parts one and two, and let's get to part three, which is focused on what if your plans go wrong? As listeners know, I'm a financial planner. I love when things are predictable. I like to know what's going You're to joking. happen. You're joking. Really? Yes. Seriously. <laughs> I like to know what's going to happen before it's going to happen, right? Going to a movie without having seen the trailer first, I can't handle that. <laughs> so I don't love the sound of hearing, okay, what if plans go wrong? But that's life. You can't plan for everything to go exactly according to plan. And you talk about this in particular in a chapter that you call Abandon Your Plans. So tell us more about this. Yeah, I would think that that would definitely raise the hackles <laughs> for you because all of your industry is banking on literally the ability to not control, but at least to know that we are ready to handle whatever happens. You don't need me to tell you that life doesn't go according to plan, but that's not the challenge to plans. In my mind, the fact that we control so little in the universe is the reason why planning is so critical and why we are, quite frankly, wired to do it. It's not really a linear question of should we plan or should we just whatever because we can't control things and look at the pandemic and I guess everything's up in the air. No, this is why we need to plan more and depend on plans less. I mean, I know this doesn't sound like good news to you, but I think that it's important because I see them as different. I see planning and plans as independent, separate things. And we will always plan and we can and should and will continue to draw on our resources of all kinds to plan ideally toward what we would like to happen. But at the end of the day, what makes life hard for us is not that, well, life doesn't go according to our plans because it has no interest in going according to our plans, but that hmm, the more attached to the outcomes of plans, the more we assume control and think, well, it will work out this way, the more disappointed we are. So it's worth questioning. At least that's what I was doing in the book, was questioning, can we plan? Can we make friends with planning 
and not be completely derailed when the universe does not go according to our desires. That's my thought. I love the example that you used in the very beginning of one of the chapters about planning where you talk about you and your sister going off to the sesame place. She was running out of the car and she tripped and fell and broke her arm. How quickly your plans changed for going to sesame place. No, we went. She didn't go. We were all (laughs) suited up, ready to go to sesame place. It was the 80s. We just had not a care in the world, but Big Bird and everything else. And then what happened? Seconds away before the car pulled out, she fell, broke her arm. I mean, it was a freak thing that happened. And all of a sudden, there was drama and she was going one way to the hospital and our friend, our like neighbor took us to Sesame Place. But I remember thinking, oh, there, but for the grace of God, go I like, oh my gosh, anything could happen, but that's not fair. But we were going to go. Doesn't matter what's fair. It's called gravity. She fell. Right. And at one point in the book, you actually take this and you just simplify it down to plan is more of a verb than a noun, which is essentially what we're saying. Plan and planning, two different things. And I just think it's such a valuable connection to our industry and and our listeners and what we're doing for them, where we talk about planning versus having a plan. These plans become irrelevant two seconds after they're printed, essentially. Right. I'm sure the both of you have worked with people who say to you, oh, I'm just not a planner. Do people say that? They almost refer to their personality that way. Does that come up? Or does everyone you work with call themselves a planner? I don't think people necessarily think of themselves as planners. I think it's something that maybe instinctually you want to do. And then also you feel like it's something you should do. I think I see more of, okay, we work on a plan and it's that act of planning of sketching out something that is actually realistic to your life, that that's a skill and understanding that that's the thing that you can control and you can take action on. And obviously plenty of times we've seen people not take action on their plan, but that's when things pivot and you keep planning for, you know, as things evolve over time. The reason I asked that was because I might say that about myself, like, oh, I'm not a planner. I don't want to plan. It doesn't matter what I think I like. The fact is we are wired to do it. In fact, one of the interesting bits of research that I had kept in mind and then cited in the book was the work of Dan Gilbert, who is a psychologist, very famous, and has wrote the book Stumbling on Happiness years ago. And here's what I learned about our ability to plan. He said that our ability to do that, to imagine what we might do in the future and plan actions, that it's fairly new in terms of human evolution. (laughs) It's like a buggy new app. Like we're still working out the kinks. Gilbert says it took five hundred million years for the first proto-human brains to emerge. Okay, 500 million. Just I can't even conceive of it, but just imagine that number in your head. Then there was a growth spurt where the human brain doubled its mass in a mere 2 million years. 2 million years still sounds like a very long time, but compared to 500 to get to this point, and then in just 2 million years, I've been on hold with Verizon for longer, the part that grew The quickest there during that spurt was the frontal lobe, which is the seat, of course, of our executive function. It's the part that figures out what decisions we have to make. You know, they're very cognitive, high-level thinking. We can't not plan. It is not something that we choose to do. Whether we sit down with an advisor and plan our future is one thing. But Gilbert says that as much as 12% of our thoughts 
center on the future, which comes to about one out of every eight hours. Imagine one out of every eight hours of your life is thinking about the future. He says that that makes us part-time residents of tomorrow. And I love the fact that you gave some examples about things that can't plan ahead, things that just live for today, like your dogs and your cats. They don't understand tomorrow. They don't understand the concept of later. They don't understand the concept of planning, essentially, because their brain doesn't have that functionality. And we do. And you also made a great point about you can't tell your brain to stop planning anymore so then you can tell your brain to tell your heart to stop beating. We're always going to think that. Right. You just can't stop it. I thought that was a really interesting way of talking about some of the cognitive aspects of the frontal lobe. And we deal with this too, because people will come in and they'll be so worried about the future. Well, I was going to say worry is really how people spend their time thinking about the future, right? So they come to you worried. Yes. And they want that clarity. They want to remove the anxiety of not having a plan. But one of the fallacies there is you can never really move, remove all of the anxiety because things change all the time. You can control doing the plan, but you can't control any of the outcomes. You just have to have a plan that you can continually adjust from. That's the planning mentality. The idea, and I know that you ascribe to this too, that you're never done planning. If you cut, paste, print a plan, there it is. I printed it out. It's on my desk. The minute it's printed, it could be outdated. The idea of having the plan is only false security if then you stop planning. You know that with your clients, you're continually revisiting. Any good advisor does. They don't say, check back in 20 years. Let's see how you did. Good luck. I mean, the idea is to keep looking at it and to be adjusting in your world, but also in all of our worlds. How many times are you like, hey, are we still meeting up next Thursday for lunch? Like, is that still happening? Well, we made the plan. Why would you need to ask? Because that is life. Because we might have said we're meeting Thursday, but Tuesday night something could come up. We all know people like this who are very rigid around plans, white-knuckled around this is how this has to happen. Those people are very reliable, but they also can be not only rigid, but they get disappointed very easily or maybe disheartened because how many times I have to plan this and I have to replan it? Well, yes, yes, that is what's going to have to happen. And it's just one of these eternal battles with time and life. And guess who wins? Time and life. Yeah, I think a lot of people, obviously, one of their financial goals is I want to retire. No, yes. I want to stop working. Exactly. That's a very common goal. But it's like, do you know exactly when you want to retire? Are you sure? You could say, okay, I want to retire at 65. And then you're like, come 60. I don't want to work to 65 anymore. A different way to think about the same question about planning for retirement. It's like, okay, you are retired. What do you actually want to do in retirement? Most people don't know how to answer that question. So I love the way that you put it in the book. You say, plan the beginning, not the end. And that really resonated with me. The point being is that you can plan your actions. You are not necessarily saying, I'm going to plan to retire at 65 and spend my day golfing every day. Come 62, your total picture may have changed. And if you were just so focused on that, rather than I want to just make sure I'm set up for retirement, whatever that looks like, whenever that happens. I mean, I don't know. It puts you just in more control of I'm going to focus on saving. I'm going to focus on investing. I'm going to focus on what are the things that bring me joy and happiness in life and how could I have 
part two meaning to my life in retirement, focusing on those bigger questions, not necessarily like how exactly you will spend your time and on what timeline. It really resonated with me. I've seen that a lot. And this idea of like, don't cling to some outcome that you can't control or may even change over time. Yeah. I mean, planning the beginning is just another way of saying, keep planning, keep maintaining that. Because like you said, you don't know. It's like 65 sounds great on paper, except at 63 when you cannot bring yourself to do what you've been doing another day, let alone two more years. We don't actually know how we'll feel. We think we do, and we're the worst. Gilbert's not the only one who talks about this. There's plenty of other experts who have looked at our ability to imagine what we think we'll feel later. We're always wrong. Why else do we book things when we always said, like, why did I commit to this on Saturday? I don't want to go to this. How many times have you committed to something months ahead? Because you assume future you was totally going to feel like doing that. Well, if present you doesn't feel like doing it, future you doesn't feel like doing it either. And so being able to imagine the future, not something we're great at. In fact, Gilbert says, you want a good example of that? Look back at how artists depicted the year 2000 in the year 1950 or 1955 or 1960. Like when you looked at futuristic cartoons or images, it was girls in poodle skirts riding rockets. It's like, well, you thought there'd be a rocket, but you also couldn't imagine wearing anything but a poodle skirt. Like we're only manufacturing and looking, we're putting together an idea of the future only based on the thread we have in front of us right now. But it's gonna be different thread later. The Jetsons for crying out loud. Yeah, he zipped home in some kind of spacecraft and she was waiting there with a martini for her because she didn't work. Well, that's not what the future was, but that's what it looked like then. So that's the best part. I don't know. For me, I think that's exciting. I like not knowing. I realize that is not maybe your sweet spot of fun, Jess, but the idea of planning the beginning just means we can start to plan and not see it as failing if it doesn't turn out the way we expected. Because how many times have you said also, well, you know what? It's funny. We were going to do this, but we didn't, or this person didn't show and that thing didn't work out. It all kind of worked out anyway. Weird. It just worked out for the best. A lot of that is us also rationalizing, making sense of the stories that happened to us and why. It's very complex, obviously, but still, this idea that things have to be a certain way or to have a certain outcome is made up in our minds. It's not even real. So if you're supposed to go to the beach one day and it's pouring rain and you're sad, rain doesn't just mean you're going to be sad automatically. It's that you had an image of what the day was and, oh, the weather didn't conform to your dreams. I'm sorry. We all know that that's how weather works. It is interesting to think about and to take a look at what do we feel is causing us to not achieve what we want or why do we assume we would or wouldn't want something later? Maybe you're 64 and you're about to turn 65 and you really don't want to leave. You just are doing some interesting work and you're like, but this is fun. I don't want to just stop because I said I'd stop, right? Yeah. Well, I think to your point, too, about being bad at envisioning the future, I think it's also okay if you're working and retirement is still a few decades off, really in general, actually. It's totally okay to say, I don't know what my goals are. I don't know what I want. I don't know what I want to do in retirement. As planners, we like to be like, well, tell me about what you envision. What are your goals? What are your objectives? Basically a way for us to say, what can we model in our financial planning software for you? And it's totally okay to say, I don't know what my retirement looks like. I mean, I'm roughly thinking maybe retire here, but like, I don't know. 
I don't know if I'm going to sell my house and move to a different parts of the country because my kids live there and not here anymore. I don't know if I want to like keep working in a part-time capacity. I don't know if I want to do full volunteer work. I don't know, which is planner's worst nightmare, but I think it's something that I really try to stress that it's okay not to know what your goals are. As much as I would love to be able to chart things exactly, if you tell me I don't know what my future is, I don't know what my plan is, that's okay. And it's okay to feel that way about your financial goals. Do you think that holds people back from reaching out to an advisor or starting a relationship? Because they'd be like, well, I don't want to think about it, or I don't know what I want. I'll wait till I figure it out and then I'll call them. Yeah. Or maybe like things are kind of going fine and like, I don't exactly know if, if I want more and I don't know what I would want that I would need help working towards. So maybe it does. I think it also goes back to what you were saying about plan the beginning, not the end. I think a big thing that keeps people from reaching out and asking for help is the overwhelming aspect of envisioning the end rather than planning the beginning. And they think, oh, geez, I don't even know where to start. This is also overwhelming. Do I have to bring in all my statements and all this stuff? And they just get so overcome by the volume of everything that they need to think about and plan for that maybe if we just focus on the beginning, which was like Jessica said, I'm sure you really need to know all of your goals. How about just something? I may want to retire sometime in my late 60s. And you just start taking it from there. Or even starting with what's stressing you out right now. I mean, not necessarily a goal, but like what's causing you anxiety. This idea that I most want to sort of expunge from all of our minds is the notion that we were supposed to know, that we're supposed to know when exactly what we want. Someone that comes to me with like a full, well, that's going to happen and this will happen and that. I'm like, really? Okay. I see someone making up a whole world inside their heads and I'm like, oh boy, this is not going to go well. I mean, there's all that psychology behind the fixed versus the growth mindset. Carol Dweck and all of her work on understanding how being fixed about things, it may read as confident or well-informed, or so well-planned, but it also can end up making people feel really limited and rigid and unable to evolve. The idea of, especially in your line of work, working with an advisor, it's not in out, thanks for my plan, bye, see you never. The whole idea is a long-term relationship. And what do long-term relationships do? They evolve with time, with shifting interests and needs and resources. I think we underestimate the whole evolution will go through and to allow that to happen. I believe that I am happier than some people who have way more money, way more of lots of things, because I am not attached to plans as much. And so that helps me feel a little lighter on my feet. Whereas if I felt burdened with what Eckhart Tolle calls burdened with psychological time, with too much future, which is consumption via worry, anxiety, the idea that if I keep worrying and thinking about the future, then I'll have it figured out. No, you'll just spend a lot of time worrying. And then we know that has a deleterious effect on your mindset. But if you're flexible and you're willing to change and take advantage of new opportunities, like you can be in flow with it instead of trying to tame it, which you can't. Yeah. Interesting. Because if worrying about the future is such a waste of time, why are we so bad at envisioning the future? Well, because worry is, to me, it's not an envision. Worry is a kind of hand washing over and over. Like I think of it as a sort of mental hygiene. We think it has a kind of protective effect. If I think about all the things that could go wrong, then I'll be on top of it when it happens. No, pain, loss, disease, the ends of things, these things happen to everyone. And worrying about them in advance not only doesn't prevent them, 
it makes all of us unable to really enjoy where we are. And that is, again, an Eckhart Tolle thing, The Power of Now. Of course, people have heard of that book. He says, the only thing standing between us and an ability to enjoy our lives now is, are we able to be present? Are we able to be here right now and not all trying to manage the future? Because if you're there all the time, you don't know what you like. You don't know what you want or how you feel. Being fully encapsulated in that worry doesn't protect you. It seals you off from knowing where real joy is. And if you don't know what that feels like, how will you get more of it? When I was reading the chapter that we're talking about now with the planning and everything, I, I wrote a little note down in the side margin where I have a couple friends from high school. And if there was the, what are those class superlatives where you get voted funniest guy? I got best looking. Uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and funniest, but um bump. So anyway, I wrote down, I was like, three of my friends came to mind where everybody, even to this day, they're referred to as, oh, she's such a free spirit. He's such a free spirit. I think to myself, is he really a free spirit? Is she really a free spirit? Or are they just living in the now better than the rest of us? Not really getting wound up in trying to understand tomorrow because maybe that's hard for everybody to do because it creates so much anxiety. I mean, I don't know. Free spirit can mean a lot of things. I don't know who considers what a free spirit. To some people, I might seem like a free spirit and to other people, I wouldn't. But there is something when we picture that, we picture someone in flow. They kind of go with what's happening. And look, I would not consider myself a free spirit. I was an anxious kid. I was fairly rigid about stuff, very worried, always had a stomachache. My mother, for decades, would just whisper in my ear and go, honey, just try to roll with it. Try to roll with it. If this happens, great. If it does just go with the flow a bit, please. Because she could feel me pumping the brakes around stuff. And oh, God, God, uh, and she saw that I would make my own life a living hell. She was right. And it's not like one day you're cured of that. But then obviously I'm a lot older now. Things are easier. I have more options. I feel a little more in control of my life than when I was 10, which I don't think childhood is free spirit time. I thought childhood was absolutely anxiety provoking on every level. I'd much rather be an adult. But still, I think the question to ask ourselves is, do you feel you're engaged in a fight every day over what the next thing is, over what's ahead of you? Are you continually fighting with it? Or are you sort of curious? Are you able to lean into it and say, here's what I intend to try. Here's what I'm planning to do. But if that doesn't work, here's what I'll do instead. It sounds so simple, but why else are people so rattled and mad? I don't have the answer, by the way. I'm trying to figure it out too, but I know that hanging on too tight to things is no good. <laughs> it does no good for anyone. For instance, the example I talk about being a writer is like, I will say I plan to enter this fiction contest. I do not plan to win. You can't. The winning is someone else is going to decide. And so when you think, well, I'm going to win it, they don't know, well, you're going to exert your will over someone. No, you're going to do the very best you can. And then we'll see. I think that having a short memory helps me here. Because if I'm past something and I submitted something I never heard back, all right, moving on. I try to let things go so I can keep moving. Because if I hang on to everything that didn't work out, now I have what we call baggage. I am dragging every disappointment with me and I feel the world owes me and I'm going to keep dragging it. And someone owes me to make life easier because look at all I'm carrying. Sorry. No, that doesn't work that way. I love that you bring up talking about baggage because I think 
particularly when talking about money. Money is like a very emotional topic, I think, regardless of people's circumstances. I think people can agree on that. So we have these distinct experiences. We have this thinking about money and wealth that's based on the life that we've lived. And it's interesting in popular culture, when it's like you hear things like this, you tend to think of that word baggage. People have like, oh, that person comes with a lot of baggage. But you have this really good analogy actually in the book about baggage versus luggage, which truthfully, I never kind of parsed those two words and realized how loaded the word baggage is. I don't like the word baggage, mainly because of how it's wielded. It tends to be used to describe what we assume someone else is carrying. Oh, I couldn't date that guy because he's divorced and he has kids, you know, so much baggage. Well, someone who's divorced and have kids doesn't necessarily have less baggage than someone who isn't married, doesn't have kids, but has a lot of emotional, unsorted issues, maybe. We think of like, oh, they have issues, they have baggage, when really none of us makes us through this life without some pain and some lessons and some things that we bring along. I don't like baggage because we use it to describe what we think other people have. So it feels judgy. But luggage I can get down with because I really appreciate the art of packing. I have tried to get very good at it. I like to think I'm good at it. I tend to pack a little more than I need. But I find luggage and packing for travel to be art and a skill. And what I mean by that is it's done intentionally and it's done well, mindful of what you think you might need without everything you need. And I like this because I pack my own luggage. That's like I decide what to bring with me, whereas baggage seems to be assigned to you. Oh, because you're a woman who, oh, you were left at the altar, you must have baggage. Like, who are you to say how I feel about anything? So I don't like it. But I think that what is worth considering is what we do bring from past experiences, past plans that didn't work out, past heartbreak, whatever, that we decide what to take. Luggage is meant to travel. It's usually on wheels. It's usually meant to go with you. There's nothing wrong with packing it, but make sure you pack it rather than assume you're supposed to drag everything with you. I love that. I've already used that line about luggage and baggage twice in the past week with somebody. (laughs) Yeah, I have. I used it actually in a conversation about people who are progressing through their careers in the military and about, hey, you got to leave your baggage behind, pack your luggage for your next job. Yes, yes. I was talking to two people about that, specifically as it related to getting out of the military and then transitioning into a new civilian job because they're retiring and said, hey, you got to pack your luggage for where you're going. You can't drag your baggage with you. And it resonated with them. I like it because packing your luggage, that's being prepared. Yes, and it makes us the active role. We take the active role. I decide what to bring. I don't need that. I'm going to leave that, but I am going to need this. This serves me in the next iteration of what my life will bring, or I'll bring this because it'll be helpful for me. It doesn't change what happened to us, but it does change like, well, here's what I'm bringing forth. Right. To bring this to a financial example, it's like, okay, what if part of your story, your experience was that your portfolio was cut in half in 2008? That would seriously inform your thinking about investments. But I kind of like this thinking of let's not obsess about the money lost, the half of your portfolio that you lost in the market. It's more about what were the lessons that you learned about in that experience. And now you have more cash in hand to ride out if there's a short-term pullback or things like that. You have basically used that experience to help you be prepared for when the market inevitably is going to fall again. 
Right. Because if you carry that baggage from, say, 2001, 2000, 2001, or 2008, or even December of 2018, you know, 20% slide in just a couple of days right before Christmas, if you carry that baggage around with you forever, you'll never get back invested. You'll never dig out of that. But if you pack your luggage and you say, okay, I'm not going to drag this baggage along, but I'm going to pack the tools I need and the resources and the advice I need to be successful. I'm going to make sure my luggage has all the tools I need to make sure that I don't lose all of that money in the next downturn, but I'm still invested in growing my money for the goals and things that I want it for. That's packing your luggage. Yes, because here's the concern. If you decide not to intentionally pack and you're just going to bring everything because you're mad, I'm going to drag everything down the street. I'm so put upon kind of thing like this shouldn't have happened to me or whatever. You're full. Your arms are full with all the things you're carrying and you have no room or flexibility to make room for what's next. So yeah, bad stuff happens. Some people have it way worse than they should or that anyone else had, whatever. I get that. However, are we so strapped with what happened that we don't have a free arm? And if you don't have a free arm and you don't have a way of making room for what's next, then how are you going to invite something new in? I do know someone who pulled out almost all of her money out because she lost just too much for even to think about. And then she didn't go back in. So when the market went back up, she lost the opportunity. I can't even think about it and she can't talk about it because it's so upsetting. But I've been hurt. So now I don't trust anyone or the world or anything ever again. You can do that. But now you've made no room and you've given yourself no arc to future. You're hanging on. That's too much past. That's the opposite of worry. That's regret. Regret is just worrying about stuff that's already happened. An interesting question just dawned on me. And the book we're talking about is called Unfollow Your Passion by Terry Trespicio. How to Create a Life That Matters to You. I'm just going to read the title again. Unfollow Your Passion. But you sat down and wrote a book. How did that happen? What do you mean? Okay. I envision somebody who's really passionate about something sitting down and writing a book. And you wrote a book called Unfollow Your Passion. So tell us real quick, like, how did the whole book happen? I'm just kind of curious because you had to plan it out. I mean, you had to have a plan. No. See, so tell us about that. It sounds like to someone looking at it might go, oh, she did a TED Talk on this thing. It did really well. Someone offered her a book deal and she wrote a book about it and she created this thing. That's very linear. It certainly went chronologically that way. But realize I gave that TED Talk in 2015. That was many years ago now. I started writing around that time and I wrote without knowing what the ultimate book was. I wasn't like, I'm going to do a book about the TED Talk. Someone said that back then, like, oh, you should do it. I was like, oh, no, I already did the talk. It's done. What am I doing? I wrote something else. I wrote things. Now, this is my process as a writer, and it's a process I teach, and it is different. But we write into what excites us, what piques our curiosity, what's fun to write about. I wrote pages and pages of stuff that did not end up in the book. But I put a lot of clay on the table before I started shaping it into this. And I will tell you, the book I pitched the publisher was not this book. I mean, some of the writing would have made it in either way. I had bolts and bolts of fabric. But the publisher, Simon & Schuster, who I was very excited, had any interest. They said, yeah, 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 great. We like your writing, but you have this, I'm sorry, this TED Talk, you're going to have to connect those dots. And so then I had to sort of go, okay, fine. Yes, I do have to work that in. I didn't pitch a personal development book. I pitched like a book of essays. I didn't know. I was like, what do you like? Let's just do something. Let's collaborate. What do you think would do well as a book? And they said a personal development title. So that was not my goal. I didn't say, I have a passion for writing about passion. I guess I'll write a self-development book. I had no interest in that. 
It wasn't until the publisher said, here's what we think you could be really great at doing. We really want you to write this. And I went kicking and screaming in and then finally was like, well, look, this is your opportunity. Do you want to do it or do you not want to do it? And I wanted to do it. So I took all the things I'd been writing for seven years and tried to figure out what would be useful to the reader. So the name of this book and the slant of this book happened in like the 11th hour of the writing. But you need the writing to start. That's why I encourage people, if they want to write a book or write anything, write and write and write and find what's interesting to you. So I did not go in with a plan for writing. I went in to generate as much as I could and then looked at all of it and said, what does the market want, first of all? Who wants to buy this kind of thing? And how are you going to serve them? Because for a long time, I was a self-help editor in the magazine world, like inner growth type person. I thought I was done with that. I was like, no, now I'm going to write about my life or whatever. And I realized no one gives a crap. You better find a way to make it work for the reader. So when I saw that the writing could be in service to a reader, and now I know who that publisher wants to sell the book to, I had to retrofit, which was really fun and made the book what it is. So no, didn't do it the way you think. It's almost a perfect example of the abandon your plan chapter. I abandoned it a thousand. Right, because you wanted it to be predictable, but it wasn't. I also thought it would be boring. I said, who wants this? I already did the TED Talk about it. Why would I want to do this book? Right. But you spent all that time writing the book and then it kept pivoting off of the plan. So you started, you planned the end, but then figured out that you had to adjust the plan in writing the book over time. I planned the beginning and I planned the action. I said, write and write until the writing sings. I did not sit down and go, I'm going to write this book. I wouldn't sit down to write a book. I don't know why people do this. You sit down to write a book, you're going to go blank. I sat down to write this piece, this piece, this piece, and then it became a book toward the end. That's why I say, if you go, I'm going to write a book, people say, I want to write a book, I just don't know what it's about. I was like, you better figure that out first. Like, you should write first. So the creative process is very different from the financial planning process in a lot of ways. But you didn't become wed to something that you couldn't control. You became wed to something you could control, which was the writing. Right. I knew that I could write whatever a publisher whom I liked and wanted to work with suggested. If they had said something else, if they suggest something else, hey, this book did well, let's do another one on this. Okay. To me, it's not about like, this is my legacy. It's like, that's what I wrote between this month and this month. That's how I pulled it together. You know why? Because it was due. Why does a book get done? Because it's like Saturday Night Live and it's 11.29 p.m. Time to go live. I try not to get too precious about the things we plan because what I thought I was writing, I wasn't writing and I didn't know that till I was done with it. So I hope that takes some of the pressure of planning off people because the creative process is different in that sense. I think there's a lesson in that story. So yeah, the creative process is different, but the whole thing about not being wed to the plan and constantly adjusting as things that you couldn't control were impacting your goal for writing a book, you kept adjusting and adjusting and adjusting. And then finally, when it came time to say, put up or shut up, you got to publish, you weren't starting with a blank sheet of paper. You had constantly had a plan that you were adjusting along the way. And when it came time to say, hey, you got to get this done, you had a lot of stuff already done because you had been doing the planning. And the preparation. And the preparation over time. I had so much content that no one ever needs to see, but it's how I found the way. And I think people want to be told, well, just tell me the quickest way, shortest way. No, there is no short way. There's the long way. There's your way, which is how you learn. You don't learn things from doing them right. 
you learn from handing in a draft to your editor and her going, okay, but we need to change this. And I don't know about this chapter. And I had to fight for it and rewrite it and make it better. And that's what ultimately led to the product, which I'm really proud of now. But in the beginning, I was like, oh no, what am I doing? Right. I really liked the part in the chapter that we're talking about, about preparation. I've used a saying with you before that you hate. You hate this saying. I'm going to say it again, though, because I know how much you hate it. I always like to say, luck is the residue of preparation. No, I just don't understand it. Explain it. I know you don't, but I'm reading your book. I read the section about Sarah Horn in 2013 when she was asked up on stage by Kristen Chenoweth to sing. I can't remember the name of the thing, but it was- The song the, For Good right, that's right, from good, The Wicked. From Wicked, right. I'm going from memory in your book, the section of the book a little bit, but in the audience, I had no idea that she would actually have an opportunity to get up on stage. Kristen Chenoweth said, does anybody know the words of the song? She put her hand up in the air and the next thing you know, she's up on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. At the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> the Hollywood Bowl. She gets up on stage and Kristen Chenoweth had no idea if she could even sing. She just said, who knew the words? She comes up and she had an opportunity to sing alongside her and just blew it out of the park. And if nobody knows what I'm talking about, just Google Hollywood Bowl and Sarah Horn and you'll see it come up 2013, the video of her singing on stage. It went viral. It was unbelievable. And I saw it for the first time after I read this in your book. And the point that you're making is that she didn't prepare for that moment to be up on stage. She just was prepared when the moment came along. That's right. And that's why I say, you know, like luck is the residue of preparation. She was prepared. And then there was this moment where she got lucky and boom, it happened. But she would have never had that opportunity. She would have never been lucky had she not been preparing by singing in the mirror as a kid into the hairbrush for years and years and years prior to that. Well, it's like they say, like, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. She'd been singing forever, and she raised her hand, but a lot of people raised their hands. It could have been anyone went up there and just kind of did their own rendition, but she's a singer. And they're like, people think it was magic. She's like, I've been training for this my whole life. I just didn't know tonight was the night. And it changed her life. They invited her back to like MC an event two weeks later. She's a school teacher for children, teaching music. She went into her class and the whole place was like applauding her. I mean, like it changed her life, all of those hours and hours. So with anyone's success, we've got to be real careful how we make assumptions about, oh, it must be so easy because she did this and then she did that. It's like how most of the work we do that matters, that's just the tip of the iceberg, what you see. What you see is the book, tip of the iceberg. Oh, look, she has a book. Big deal. A lot of people have books. What you don't see and anyone who's ever written or created anything, is the size of the iceberg under the surface, the massive amount of space it takes up in your life because you want it to, and how big and long those efforts are. Not that we're suffering, but that the work has to be worth it. And to me, it was to write and write because I love it. By the way, very hard. And I know that. 100,000 people will try to get printed, something like that, by a traditional publisher. And it's like one in 100,000. I realize that I am very lucky in a lot of ways. But that doesn't mean I wasn't prepared for it. And it doesn't mean any of us can't be prepared for the futures we want. But the option is not to set it and forget it. It just doesn't work that way. I guess I like to say that your opportunity to capitalize on luck goes down the less prepared you are. And that feeds right back into planning and everything that Jessica and I and everybody at Monument does, which is we try to get people prepared. We prepare them to take advantage of situations and decisions that they need to take along the way. And you have to be doing planning along the way. You have to be prepared. You're in the preparedness business. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that was my favorite part of the book. I know Jessica wanted to ask you what your favorite nugget from the book was. Yeah. I mean, what's one big sort of standout? 
or takeaway, Terry, you think from your book that you want to leave our listeners Oh, what's my favorite? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Wait, back up a sec though. The fact about planning and plans and that psychologically how we feel different, when someone comes in to talk to you guys, finally, to have like the big conversation about their financial future, and then they leave, say it's an hour later, a whole big deep dive. When they leave, they feel, I'm willing to bet, markedly different than when they walked in. But nothing's changed yet. The plan isn't set. They don't have more money. They have seen their options. They realize there is a degree of planning they can do so they will feel at ease. It's the same reason why recently I had a horrible cold, like a lot of people, because our immune systems were woefully out of shape. I was sick for weeks before I went into the doctor and I was like, I am miserable. I was hacking up a lung in there. And when I left the office, he's like, all right, here's your prescriptions. And I left the office and I felt great. Nothing was different. (laughs) I felt better. I'm like, I saw the doctor. I'm better. Why? Because I was seen, I was heard, and now I had options. It's no different than why I sit with you guys or anyone sits with a great advisor and they feel seen and heard and they have options. And so that's what I aim for in this little thing, my very first thing that I've done that the world can see besides that dead duck. And I want the same for the readers of this book. I want people to read Unfollow Your Passion because I want them to feel better having read it and go, oh, I feel seen, I feel heard, I have options. It's the same goal. Probably my favorite parts are toward the end of the book because we get into some deep stuff about what self-development really is and isn't, and it's actually not about fixing anything. That when we go into fix flaws, then we just find more flaws to fix. But the really, I think, revolutionary, I'm not the first one to say it, but the thing I'm most proud of is in this book, If we can stop looking for, oh, I'm going to change these things and I'll be better and I'll have a better life. It's what can we unfix? The word fix means to fasten or secure. What if I were to let go of some things and allow things to be a little looser, a little more flexible, a little more fluid? What other things am I missing? Because I am locked on one idea of what it is to live my life. What if that weren't so fixed? What if I were unfixed? What kind of life? could I have? It's beautifully put. That's what I hope for me. I don't have it all figured out. That is what I hope for anyone, really. Yeah, this idea that there is no magic. There is no magic plans. There is none. The story I tell all the time, people are so sick and tired hearing it, but it's the imaginary drive from Washington, D.C. to Miami. You can play in the beginning, get in the car at eight o'clock because we've got to be on the road at eight o'clock and we're going to get on 95 South and we're going to drive and hopefully get there in 16 hours. But There's going to be traffic jams and flat tires and people that need to pull over for a break and have something to eat and all kinds of things that are outside of your control. But if you plan the beginning and just get on the road and you start driving, you can adjust your plan as you get going and you'll eventually get there. But you can't plan the end. You can't say, I'm going to be to Miami 16 hours from right now. It will never work out. Show me people who are set on those plans and mad when the plans don't work out, and I will show you someone who spends most of the very precious time they have mad. It's just not how I want to live my life. I get angry enough. (laughs) This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you. Unfollow Your Passion, How to Create a Life That Matters to You by Terry Trespicio, going on sale right before Christmas of this year, correct? It should be in home before the holidays. That's the goal. 
Great. Can they pre-order it on Amazon? Well, pre-order <laughs> right. it. Hey, there you go. I'll say this. You don't have to get it from Amazon. You get it wherever you want. But go to unfollowyourpassion.com because people who pre-order get special perks from me. And so it's worth doing the pre-order. Thank you, guys. Okay, so definitely go pre-order it. And you know what? Go give it a five-star review and a great review on Amazon, even before you read it. Just go do it. <laughs> Please. And then buy it. Right? There you go. Just based on this Cliff's Notes uh, <laughs> interview. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I speak with Terry, I allot myself five minutes. It turns into 35. She's a fascinating woman and a great writer. And the book is fantastic. Please go out and pick it up. Jessica and I thought there were so many analogies between your points that you make about planning and what we do that it would be a fantastic conversation. And it turned out to be exactly that. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Terry. 